Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Leggett, and of course, I'm very glad to have you uh, with us. As you probably know, you just heard NPR News, of course, but you political junkies out there probably already knew that Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to dominate uh, headlines out of Washington here in Georgia and across the country. Uh, Last night, uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said he had a darn good talk with Marjorie Taylor Greene and told her he wasn't happy with some of the things she'd been saying uh, he didn't report whether she said she understood that or not, um, but nevertheless, because Republicans on the Hill have refused to do anything to uh, 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 criticize, to censure Green for uh, her behavior and for her rhetoric this afternoon, probably late this afternoon, the House, the Democratic House, will take up the measure to strip her of her committee assignments. And, and I know that's a story that you're all very interested in. Tomorrow on this show, we will take it up in depth as we uh, talk about the political news of the day. Uh, so I look forward to having you all back for that show. But um, today, I'm really thrilled that we're going to get to talk with David Pogue about his brand new book, um, How to Prepare for Climate Change, A Practical Guide to Surviving the Chaos. And of course, joining me for that conversation as he does on every Thursday, AJC editor, the boss, Kevin Riley. How are you, Kevin? Good morning, Bill. I, too, am really looking forward to this conversation with, uh, with David. And uh, uh, it's, the topic is just fascinating. And his approach on this book is, is really an amazing look at, at this issue. Yeah, I, I do think I have to tell our listeners that you and Pogue have already had a love fest about your both growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe we'll get into a little talk about Cleveland at some point <laughs> during uh, the show. Well, today. But let, let me get right. We need to be a little careful because we didn't have a chance to talk about the Browns and their prospects in the draft. And it's going to turn into a sports talk show, oh so we better watch God. ourselves. <laughs> oh, all right, <laughs> David Pogue. I want to I want to introduce you as much more properly. Uh, for a, a number of years, you were the New York Times tech writer. You were the guy who people like me, uh, tech geeks and gadget junkies, couldn't wait to read as you talked about the technology of the Times in your New York Times uh, column. Uh, you went on. Uh, beyond that, though, uh, to uh, host Nova Specials for PBS, you wrote a series of four dummies books about things like opera, magic, classical music. Um, you wrote a series of missing manuals for those of us who weren't sure how to use our iPhones. Um, and uh, you wrote a fascinating book back in 2009 Um a, a book that was based on the, that you created with f- your 500,000 Twitter followers. Have I got that right? That's right. It was a crowdsourced book of humor and wisdom. What was it called? Uh, it was called uh, The World According to Twitter. And uh, okay. I, I consider it, I mean, the, the book tanked. Nobody bought that book, but 
Uh, I think I think they <laughs> thought it was about Twitter or something, but I honestly, yeah. I think it was my, my finest moment. <laughs> I, 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 I think it sounds like it was a fascinating uh, experiment, if nothing else. But here's another thing that people don't know about you. You studied music in college, and you actually had a career working in musical theater. I think, were you the music director or the arranger for the off-Broadway production of Flora the Red Menace, which, for people who aren't into musicals, may not realize is a show that kind of introduced Liza Minnelli to the Broadway stage. Oh, my gosh. Okay, forget about climate change. We're talking about Broadway for the next year. <laughs> oh, my with me. gosh. You were punching my buttons. Yes, that was my, my off-Broadway debut. <laughs> was Floor the Red Menace. Wow. You, we should do a whole different show about your talking about people like Liza Minnelli and what it must have been like. All right, but let's but, turn but to your... How on earth would you even know that? That's, that's not on my Wikipedia page. It's not, it's, nobody knows that. That's really good. Because, David, I'm not only a tech geek and junkie, I am a Broadway musical junkie as well. Wow. And I follow theater and I follow New York theater closely. So anyhow, we are so happy to have you with us. And I think by introducing you the way we did. It's just to say you are one of the most curious people about such a wide range of subjects. And, and I think that's reflected in how to prepare for climate change, uh, because this really is an encyclopedic book, which takes us through such a vast array of things you believe we need to do to adapt our, our houses, how we prepare our children to understand uh, climate change, whether we should think about whether we have children or uh, not, um, um, what we should do if we find ourselves caught in a protest or a riot that's been brought about by some climate crisis. I mean, the book just ranges so broadly, and, and we'll dip into uh, some of the areas, of course. But if I can, let's start with this premise that you set up right in the introduction to your book, which is what I said in the headlines. Essentially, what you say to us is, stop worrying about whether um, this is a, a liberal plot to destroy uh, corporate America. Stop worrying about whether Republicans are uh, anti-science. Take things into your own hands and begin to understand that you have a role to play. You may not be able to solve climate change, but you can begin adapting for the things that are, are happening to us. Is that a fair enough way to start? Expertly put, Bill. Fantastic. Um, it, it turns out that when we talk about deniers, climate change deniers, I'm not really sure what people mean. Do we mean people who say that the climate is not changing, people who haven't noticed the extreme weather, the hurricanes, the wildfires? I think that number of people is vanishingly small. I think when people talk about climate deniers, they're people who say that human activity is not involved, that this is just all a natural cycle. So as a, as a handy benefit of this book's approach, I don't care. It, it doesn't matter what you think is causing the disruptions. The point is disasters are now a regular part of life, and you need to get ready for them. I mean, if you could, if you could see that you know, a disaster was coming your way, you just didn't know when, wouldn't you get ready? So that's the premise. Um, Kevin, what's interesting about uh, David's approach to this as well is his acknowledgement that if we sit down and try to say, gee, 
how can I solve climate crisis, rising oceans, raging wildfires? It's, it's incredibly depressing because, of course, this is uh, uh, beyond our individual ability to change. And so instead, Kevin, he talks about uh, the fact that we can take steps to adapt and, and in taking steps to adapt, do some mitigation as well. Well, yeah, and that's kind of what, what I wanted to ask him about, because I think the approach, uh, again, is, is inspiring in its way, because, okay, how many, uh, how many metal straws uh, can I buy to try to solve these climate and crisis, right? And, and at what point uh, do I just give up and say, well, let me look at these predictions, and I think I'm going to be dead anyway, and I just can't worry about it anymore. His, his approach is very different and even, I think, right, inspires us to look forward to those, our children, our children's children, perhaps, and just recognize and prepare, right? I mean, tell us why you took that approach. I mean, I think I know, but... Well, Kevin, if I if I might uh, bow to your exceptional clarity and wisdom, that is exactly the point. My my editor calls this the first uplifting book about climate change. It it it, it turns okay. out that uh, in the in the psychology world, they will tell you that depression is not just feeling like everything's terrible; it's feeling like everything's terrible and you can't do anything about it. It's feeling like you have no control. So the act of preparing yourself, your family, your home, your insurance, your investments, your children for climate disasters is taking action. It's taking some control and it winds up making you feel better. You know, it, it, it not only prepares you for when the disaster comes, but it makes you feel better in the meantime, even if disaster never comes. You, you, you escape eco despair, as they call it, which is a, a modern affliction. So um, I want to talk about what's in many ways at the heart of uh, people talking about climate change, uh, which are uh, ever-expanding heat waves, extreme uh, heat waves. But, but before I do, David, let me ask you a question that um, I think is an interesting one in terms of the rhetoric we use. Um, global warming was the language that we used to use to talk about climate change, and it fell out of fashion. Um, and I'm not quite sure why it did, but I'm wondering if you have uh, uh, looked at the difference between talking about global warming and climate change and, and why it matters to change the rhetoric. Oh, man, that, this is, you're, you're, you're pushing, pulling my levers here. Yes, um, I think global warming is a terrible term. It makes people think that the problem is hotter weather. And this is, this is where we got you know, Senator James Inhofe bringing a snowball into Congress a few years ago. They don't tell me the earth, the earth is warming. Um, it's what happens is, yes, the earth warms as the, as the greenhouse gases thicken the blanket around our atmosphere. But what the result is a domino effect. It's a ripple effect of craziness. All, all natural systems are connected. So as, as Georgians know, we get extreme rain and extreme drought. We get wildfires and we get freak snowstorms. We get flooding, and we get water shortages. I mean, it, it makes no sense. These are all crazy opposites, but that's, that's just the point. And, by the way, those are just the headlines. I mean, there's also, you know, we're getting smaller goats, more expensive chocolate, lower PSAT scores, more bar fights. I mean, just nutty stuff, <laughs> secondary, tertiary effects. 
Let me let me ask. I mean, you you pick these examples. I mean, for shock value, uh, and I get it. But lower SAT scores connect those dots for us. <laughs> yeah, um, study after study shows that children perform worse when it's hot, and in many schools there isn't air conditioning. In many parts of the country that don't traditionally have air conditioning, suddenly we need it. Uh, I was in San Francisco last year. They don't have air conditioners in San Francisco. They've never needed them. And boy, did they need <laughs> like 105 in the apartment. It was just absolutely brutal. So, yeah, so things are changing. Uh, let's talk about uh, extreme heat for a minute. Uh, it, you uh, have a chapter about heat waves in the book, and you point out to us that when you look at uh, a variety of weather conditions, whether it's uh, cold, winter storms, lightning, hurricanes, tornado, floods, whatever, uh, you know, major, uh, major climate disasters, heat is by far, by far the biggest killer of them all. It, you, you say uh, it is the deadliest of all the extreme weather monsters. And one of the things you uh, remind us of is a story that was big news last summer when in Phoenix, Arizona, the temperatures were so hot that, um, that, the, uh, that planes, commercial jets, had to be grounded because there wasn't enough air uh, to get them uh, flying, right? Yeah, the, the air was too thin. You know, the air, thin. things expand when they're warmer, so that there wasn't enough lift to support the wings. And, and, and beyond that, you talk about the fact that uh, you give us some data. Last five years, the hottest ever measured on the planet. June 2019, the hottest single month ever recorded. Um, it, there's uh, other information in there as well. It's very interesting. You say in the summer of 2020, Siberia suffered a blistering uh, heat wave, which you say uh, Siberia and heat wave are not terms that occur often in the same uh, sentence. Okay, why is it getting so hot? Well, the, the, the Earth has always had this blanket of gases around us. So we're, we're glad that it does, right? Otherwise, the Earth would be a frozen ice ball. So the sun's rays come down, they strike the surface of the Earth, gets converted to infrared energy, which bounces back up, and some of it goes back out into space, some of it gets trapped by this blanket of gases. And this is a natural cycle. Every 100,000 years, we've had a spike in carbon dioxide levels. We've had a spike in temperatures to go along with it. Very standard stuff. What's changed since we started burning fossil fuels in the Industrial Revolution is the speed of that spike and the height of it. We are now at the highest concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in 12 million years. So it's, it's suddenly getting really bad really fast, and that's what's unleashing all this this heat. And, and by the way, that ties into the whole premise of the book, which is 93% of all the new heat is stored by the oceans. And they will take a couple of lifetimes to cool down, even if we stopped burning fossil fuels tomorrow. So don't think that these wildfires and hurricanes are a, a, a freak thing of the last few years. This is how it is from now on. This is, this is what we have to get used to. So to my amazement, Everything that I see written about climate change, everything is about mitigation. It's about how to stop it, you know, buy an electric car, eat less red meat, fly less. And that's all super important. We want to make it as, as not bad as we can. 
But nobody talks about the other side, which is how do we cope with what we've got? And that really is – I mean, governments and industries are doing a lot of that. You know, they're, they're moving farmland northward. They're building enormous seawalls around New York and so on. But hardly anyone talks about what individuals and families can do. So I saw this huge yawning gulf in the, in the coverage, and that's, that's where I hope to step in. Uh, why do you think that is, David? Do you think it's just, uh, I mean, back to your idea about it's just too depressing because I can't do anything, but, or, or is it, um, I just can't think about this every day. I'm trying to, you know, do my radio show or get to work, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, that. And also for many years, climate scientists did not want people talking about adaptation because the feeling was if we make the populace feel like they're helpless and there are no steps that they can take, that'll just make the problem worse. So let's not talk about what's here is here to stay. Let's keep people hopeful. Nowadays, I think that's changed. I think people feel like we need to mitigate and we need to adapt at the same time as hard and as fast as we can. So that's, I think you're going to be hearing this term adaptation a lot more in the coming years. Okay. So, um, before we uh, uh, dig down into some more of the details of, of what you're proposing that, that we can do to adapt, l let's talk about an issue that already uh, uh, you mentioned near the top of the show. And that is, your question was, what are climate deniers actually denying? Uh, but, but in dealing with that, you actually have a section of the book in which you try to offer some advice on how to deal with climate deniers. And, and it strikes me in some ways that that part of the book is not terribly different from what a lot of people have gone through at their Thanksgiving dinner table trying to understand how you talk to your batty uncle about Donald Trump and uh, whether he was good or bad for the country. I mean, there are some very similar kinds of themes there, I think. There, there really are, and, and I actually learned a lot from that section. And I, I learned a lot from the whole book, but that part totally turned me around. I'd, I'd spent the years citing statistics and trends when I talked to people about climate change, and when you're talking to a denier, not only will that not change anybody's mind, study after study shows that you will make them retrench. You will confirm their bias. You will make them dig in. The, the rule that I heard is, you cannot change somebody's mind with facts whose opinion wasn't formed by facts in the, in the first place. So when you're talking to a denier, it's important not to bombard them with facts and figures, but instead empathy, empathy, empathy. Talk about emotional stories. Talk about your uncle who lost his, his farm crop. Talk about how your kid's lying awake at night worrying about climate change. And listen. Listen to them. Listen to their uh, to their talking as one of my I interviewed a ton of uh, psychologists for this book and one of them had this great line people don't care what you know until they know that you care so that's the premise you will not get anywhere with a denier by bombarding them with statistics uh, but the issue we have here is um, I get that and it makes sense um, but but the the denier is supported by a vast army of people in the political sphere who refuse to accept that climate change is real. 
They may believe in their hearts that it is, but they understand that for their own survival in politics, they'd better be careful about how they address it, given uh, where they're getting their support, right? So yeah, that's right. When you so so, how do you, you really can't do much about that? I think in some ways, our much maligned capitalist system is going to take care of that for us. In that, the corporate interests really are coming around. There's this incredible outfit called the Carbon Disclosure Project or the cdp.net, you can look it up. And it was, it was designed for investors to find out just how exposed are the nation's companies, the world's companies, to climate change disasters, right? And it invites these big corporations to submit these elaborate dossiers on not only how risky is their business, um, but what they're doing to mitigate and take advantage. And this is, again, putting investor pressure on companies to change, and then, of course, there's public pressure on companies to change. And then there's internal pressure from the employees. You may remember that two years ago, Amazon had no climate plan, and their employees sort of had a mutiny. And Jeff Bezos finally said, okay, okay, we'll give $10 billion to climate science. We'll convert all our delivery vans to electric and so on. So corporations are feeling it from all sides, including Wall Street. Um, and so I think gradually that that thing about politicians bread being buttered by the petroleum industry, I think it's going to have to start to change. And, of course, you could argue that the, the man we just elected to the White House has climate change as a higher priority than his predecessor. Kevin, I know you want to jump in, but let me just throw something out first and, and then get you in here. Um, we have a, a listener uh, uh, this morning, uh, David, who is um, works at the Center for a Sustainable Coast on the, on the on the Georgia coast, and he had an interesting comment. He said, "Those who deny the issue may admit individual events, but they do not admit that these changes are part of a trend. Many portray changes as if they might reverse at any time, thereby suppressing facts about the causes. So, if changes are not viewed as long-term and irreversible, they see no reason to prepare for them, much less reduce the causes." I think that's that's an interesting observation, and I just wanted to share it with you. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I mean, the the bottom line is the the Yale Center for for Climate Communications runs a study every year every April, where they poll a huge swath of Americans on their climate change attitudes. And the number of people who are deniers is, is dropping. I mean, it is dropping. It's 37 percent as of a year ago. Um, and in this polarized climate, you know, to get over 50 percent of Americans agree on anything is an achievement. And uh, as I was recently reminded, 20 percent of Americans believe that aliens walk among us. So you're never going to get you're never going to get a hundred percent agreement, but but the the, the consensus is gradually growing. Uh, Kevin, David, let me try something for a second, um, and and I'm going to uh, pretend for a moment that I'm a I'm a climate change denier, and I'm going to frame this in the way that COVID has been framed, particularly in Georgia, which is this: it, people it, these mitigation efforts. Uh, uh, are way harder and worse than letting this happen because of the economic problems it causes for regular people. In other words, 
in Georgia, you know, we don't have a mask mandate. We have opened up many businesses because the fear is that we're destroying our economy and therefore destroying so many vulnerable people. So your idea of mitigation is worse than the problem for average people. Convince me I'm wrong. <laughs> well, uh, I can't. I think I, I. I think I can make a start. Uh, we hear, we hear a lot about the plight of the coal miners, right? The plight of the coal miners is written in stone. There are no more coal plants planned for the United States. Done. My the experts I interviewed for the book said coal in the United States is done. Last year, for the first time, we generated more power from solar and wind than we did from coal. The, the two graphs actually cross. And already there are more jobs in solar, in the solar industry, than there are in the entire coal industry already. I mean, nobody, know, nobody sees that the writing is on the wall. Now, as with any huge technological change, there will be winners and there will be losers. And without retraining current coal miners, current petroleum uh, workers will be left out. That is true. So I can understand from an individual basis, but then there are other Americans who will be gaining jobs in these exploding industries. I mean, you have no idea how huge the momentum is toward sustainable energy. In 2020, 72% – here I am spouting numbers and statistics, sorry. <laughs> but in, in 2020, 72% of all new American power capacity came from renewable energy. It's absolutely astounding. And many states now have mandates. You know, uh, Hawaii, California, New York have all said that by 2030 or whatever, the state will get 50% of all their power from clean, renewable energy. So those are industries where trillions of dollars will be changing hands, creating jobs, creating industries. And indeed, everything you hear from the new presidential administration is, you know, we have to do this in such a way that it, 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 it boosts the economy as well. I mean, look, it's going right. to be decarbonizing. It's going to be redoing the grid, and that involves so much money. It's an injection of money into the economy. So I got to get to a break, but we've, we've, we've talked about the deniers and how to deal with them. Uh, we've, let's go from the – and also from the macro – to the micro. Uh, let's look very specifically at some of the things you propose in your book, which in many ways is what makes your book different from the other uh, books about climate change uh, right now. You to give us a practical guide to how we might deal with the impact of climate change. We're talking to David Pogue. We'll be back in just a moment. Uh, we're back with uh, Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, and David Pogue, whose new book is How to Prepare for Climate Change, which is just published about a week ago or so. Um, and as I said before, this is truly an encyclopedic guide to what we can do to adapt uh, to changes in our climate. Uh, let's, let's start, David, by uh, you uh, give us a general overview of the various regions of the country and uh, sort of bring it home to our listeners across uh, Georgia and into Alabama and South Carolina. Uh, here's what you say about the Southeast. 
These states can look forward to sea level rises, increasing temperatures, extreme heat events, heavy precipitation, decreased water availability. This all the way, I should uh, point out, by the way, this actually uh, comes from a, I think, a federal assessment of what's the regional uh, situation, right? Am I right to say that? Not only that, it was a report put out by, of all things, the Trump administration. Um, you say drought and greater fire activity are expected to continue to transform forest ecosystems in the region. Coastal states here will get the brunt of the hurricane forces every year. Uh, and you go on for their uh, oppressive heat. It will be the most lethal climate change force. And in these states, and we know this well here, it's matched by oppressive humidity. Thanks to the flourishing of mosquitoes and ticks, tropical diseases and Lyme disease will become powerful threats. And to make matters worse, these states will become poorer as the northern states grow richer. What an upbeat guy you are, Pogue. <laughs> I'm just a messenger. <laughs> um, okay, so Kevin, within that context, one of the things that David Pogue, you know, suggests we might look at is whether we want to stay in cities, in parts of the country, where we're going to suffer from these kinds of terrible uh, effects and and. and Kevin, I think you were pleased to note that David thinks that maybe we should be looking at moving, among other places, to the places like Cleveland, Chicago, my hometown. Uh, I'm sure you're filled with Cleveland pride about that, Kevin. Well, I wanted to ask, David, and I'm asking for a friend. Um, say you're a Midwestern native who found his way to Georgia, and you are thinking about, uh, you know, retiring someday and you love the Georgia coast and you love so many things about Atlanta and Georgia. Um, what what does your book suggest this friend of mine should do? <laughs> um, I mean, obviously not everybody has the luxury of moving or resettling, but uh, as the book notes, 40 million Americans do move every year. And if climate is a consideration, the calculus goes like this. You want to keep away from the West Coast with its wildfires. You want to move inland from the East Coast with its hurricanes and its uh, tick and mosquito problem. Uh, of course, the South, you've just covered that. And the entire Western half of the United States is in a more or less a perpetual drought. I mean, the water problem is something hardly anyone talks about on the news because it's such a boring piece of footage. It's not like seeing a California wildfire to see that the aquifers and the snow melt are at record lows. But anyway, the, so the sweet spot, as you say, is the Great Lakes area. It's, it's above the 42nd parallel. It's the, the Rust Belt cities. All of my experts said they're poised to become the, the climate havens of the next few decades. So, yeah, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Syracuse, Buffalo, Duluth, um, Madison, Wisconsin. And it's not just for climate reasons, by the way. These are, of course, uh, cities that were built for much larger populations in the old days in the industrial era and so they have a very low cost of living they have a lot of room to grow and they have all the amenities sports teams airports great hospitals um, and great lakes an unending supply of clean drinking water uh david on uh, cbs sunday morning a couple of weeks ago i think it was you did a story on just this you had a california of uh, you know, two two families 
one that moved to Madison, Wisconsin, right, and another that went to Burlington, uh, Vermont. The California family, the the woman said, I, I think, I don't know her exact quote, but I can get close. She said the wildfires, when she saw a horse surrounded by fire, running surrounded by fire, she realized we've got, we can't stay here any longer. Yeah, they decided it was the Paradise Fire 2018. They returned, their house was gone. As they stood there in the smoking ruins, she decided at that moment she'd had enough. You know, they were getting out of wildfire territory. Uh, really kind of a moving story. So, yeah, so they, they pick up and within, I mean, they, they had nothing to pack. It's a really heartrending thing. They lost everything in that fire. They had their cars, their kids, and their dog, and, and about a couple of suitcases worth of stuff they could reclaim, and then they just drove across the country. You know, I wonder, I, that story's got to live online where our listeners could look at it if they didn't see it, I imagine. Why, Amelia, do you think maybe we could see if we can find that story online and post a link to it? Because it's really worth watching, I think. Um, so we'll do that. Amelia will do that. Kevin? It's also a great example of what I think David was trying to get across earlier. Uh, if you find yourself in an argument or, uh, with family or friends, um, it's that kind of powerful, personal, real person story that's so persuasive in terms of how this could play out for so many more people over time, as opposed to, you know, the many government reports and statistics and, you know, all the stories about building seawalls and all of that which, you know, just, just doesn't move people and touch people the way that a story like that can. Okay, yeah, so for right. the many people, who, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt that. Uh, for the many people who can't move uh, or just don't want to move, uh, you do have a section of the book in which you talk about how we can adapt our, our homes, our housing uh, to uh, climate change. Of course, one of the things you talk about is solar uh, because we, we have to have some... We probably are going to need some for alternate form of, of energy if things really go south on all of us. But solar is just one example of the ways that you think we should adopt, adapt our houses. There's heat exchanges. Talk a little bit about what you propose people can look at around their own house to see what they can do to adapt better. It really depends on where you live. You know, there are certain things that uh, I learned about wildfires that are, are not commonly known. For example... Your home in wildfire country catches these embers, these flying ashes, uh, as much as a mile away from the fire, and it lands in your gutters, it lands in some dead leaves, and boom, your house is on fire. So for, for wildfire country, it's all about creating what they call defensible space, like a, a moat around your home where there isn't anything burnable. But for Georgians, for example, um, I think you know, the, the most extreme stuff are the hurricanes, the windstorms, um, and a, a really common way that homes get destroyed in the big storms is through the garage. The garage mm. doors are these enormous, really thin, really weak entry points to your home. The wind blows them down and then blows up your home like a balloon. The, the pressure builds inside the home. You see those aerial photos of roofs missing and stuff. That's how it happens. So you can buy these inexpensive garage door braces that you snap into place when a storm is coming. But in a pinch, you can also just put a two-by-four on, on its end against the middle of your garage door and carefully back the car up against it, put pressure against it to pin it against the door. 
and you just reinforce your garage from the worst of the storm. I'm fascinated by that. Let me, Kevin, uh, one of the things that David talks about is looking at your soffits. I've been a homeowner for many, many years, and I never have been quite sure what a soffit really is. Thank goodness there's a photograph or an illustration of them in the book. But, David, why should I look at my soffits to decide that they can be somehow uh, made uh, better in terms of dealing with weather-related problems? <laughs> soffits are a big deal. Uh, uh, the, the, architect, architects can talk endlessly about soffits. This is the underside of your eaves, right? The, the roof overhang. It's, it's a flat part underneath. And that's how a lot of extreme weather gets in. So in rain and hurricanes, that's where the extreme wind blows water into your house. And boom, you've got water problems, leaks, and mold, which is, oh, the worst. Um, and in a wildfire country, um, that's where the embers get into your attic. They blow in through the soffits. So for not a lot of money, you can have your soffits replaced by these mesh uh, coverings that prevent the, um, the, the, the ashes from flying in there. And, of course, you can also redesign them in such a way to keep the water out, too. So little things. Hey, Kevin, we got a couple minutes before we got to get to our final break. You want to jump in? I just have to ask, David, is there anywhere safe? I mean, you you were pushing the Great Lakes there, but tornadoes are supposed to get worse, too. I mean, uh, is there anywhere, if people are free to move, where you, 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 you can actually escape all of this? Nope. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I got I an idea. I was afraid that was going to be the answer. That's why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're... <laughs> You're right. In the United States, there is no completely safe area. You know, the idea behind the Great Lakes is, um, you know, tornadoes are very brief. You know, they, they live and die in 10 minutes. They're not like hurricanes, which can go on for days. And, you know, the, the Great Lakes rising, again, that's, that's nothing close to the, the level of damage and destruction as rising sea level, where every foot the sea level rises, it's 500 feet inland. Of flooding, so on the great scale, the Great Lakes area is have have minor problems, but really, I mean, you know, Canada, Siberia, Greenland, these are going to be the new sweet spots. There are all these agricultural companies diving into Greenland, which is, has never been before considered an agricultural zone. They're like, hot damn, investment! <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, we got to get to our final break of the show, but David, in your honor. And given your past career, I want to take us to our next break by playing a little bit of a song that will be very familiar to you. What do you call a job at Garrett Mellick's? What do you call a fashion illustrator? What do you call assisting Mr. Stanley? for climate change. You talk about electric cars in your book. You must have been really uh, thrilled when you heard GM make a relatively surprising announcement without even bringing in the rest of the auto industry. They announced on their own they're converting uh, uh, away from uh, uh, cars, uh, combustible engine cars by, what is it, 2035 was the 
year they said, and Kevin, we should point out that Georgia is a very big center for electric uh, vehicles. And, and in fact, in your newspaper this morning, Kevin, you have an article about the fact that Apple is negotiating with Kia to uh, begin uh, producing their car at the Kia plant over there in uh, West Georgia. Plus, Kevin, we have a huge uh, South Korean company that's coming in to uh, build a $2.5 billion battery uh, uh, operation here for electric cars. So uh, all that said, uh, uh, David, the tide is turning. As you said earlier, industry's beginning to adapt if a lot of individuals aren't. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the the General Motors news blew my socks off. I mean, they were they were the <laughs> laggards in the car industry. All the other car industries have committed to go electric, but but General Motors was not just saying, "Yeah, we're going to start making more electric models." They said, "We're switching entirely away from gas cars." Incredible, incredible. And I'm I'm glad that Georgia is going to be the recipient of some of the economic development. That's that's what we're saying is that there's going to be winners and losers, but on balance, there will be a lot more winners as we decarbonize the planet. Uh, Kevin, I, I wonder how people like your readers, um, regular folks who listen to our show, how quickly we're all going to be intro, into adapting. I, I sometimes think it's a generational thing, but maybe I'm wrong about that, Kevin. Yeah, I, I, I wonder about that, too, Bill. I mean, I do think that there's a little bit of um, – uh, and I want to ask David about this. So, I mean, for people who are, let's say, of retirement age, um, and, they, and they've been hearing about this for 25 years, um, I mean, don't you think there's a little bit of resignation? Well, I kind of don't have to worry about it. And, but I think your book says, hey, think about your kids. Think about their kids and how you may position the, the things you leave for them, like a vacation home or like your home or, you know, the, just the world you're leaving behind for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, when I hear politicians say, you know, they don't care, I, I do wonder what's running through their heads when they think about their legacy, their, their children and their grandchildren. I mean, when I think about people 100 years ago, I think of, they're, they're in black and white. They move really jerky, and, and they're idiots. They have no idea, you know, how they seem naive to me. And I really feel like people decades from now will see us as those people, jerky, black and white, naive people who didn't take simple steps when we could have. David, let's turn to a subject that is of great concern to a lot of people, and that's when it comes to uh, people who have to deal with climate change, issues of equity. Climate change has tends to have a bigger, I mean, it has an impact on all of us, but in many cases, the people who can least afford to adapt are those who are living in underserved communities, uh, have fewer resources, and, and that is going to be a gigantic issue moving forward, isn't it? it? It really is, and that's why you hear every policymaker talk about attacking the climate change problem and doing it equitably. That's what they're talking about. Study after study after study shows that communities of color and lower income communities get hit the worst by climate change for a long list of historical reasons. First of all, many of these, commi uh, these communities were 
forced by redlining decades ago into low-lying areas, industrial areas, areas with poor um, water cleanliness and air quality. Um, the homes tend to be built more flimsily. Um, you know, everyone, there was an astonishing number of people in Hurricane Katrina who did not leave the city. And we, you know, white bread, coastal <laughs> intellectual elite says, well, what idiots. They, they thought they could ride out the storm. Well, no, it's not that. It's that a huge percentage of residents had no car and nowhere to go. Where are you supposed to go in a hurricane if you don't have a car? So every inch of this has to be done with an eye towards equality as well as just solving the problem. But how do we do that? You, well, it has to be done through policy. So that's, that's why you hear the incoming presidential administration. Um, well, well, so here's an example, right? We, because of the pandemic, have gotten used to the notion of the government spending trillions of dollars. It's become okay for, for many people. It's been, become understandable, at least, that to solve a huge crisis, we have to spend a lot of money. So when that spending approaches climate change, and infrastructure and other things the country needs, it can be done in such a way that it's done equitably throughout the different economic strata. So you have to think about it as you address the problem. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the government, but – and I should also say, by the way, that you don't need money to adapt. I mean, as I wrote this book, I was painfully aware of what I was saying and trying to make sure that most of the solutions are free and easy. For example – one of the first things I suggest people do, no matter what your economic status, you download this free app, and, and almost every American has a smartphone now, um, from the American Red Cross called Emergency. And it's this really cool app. You put in your address, your parents' address, maybe your workplace, and then you forget about it. You put it in some phone folder and forget. If any disaster ever comes your way, you get early warning. It beeps and flashes and gets your attention, even if it's a a non-natural disaster like a nuclear power plant meltdown or something like that. So it's a great way to have a little safety net, a little early warning that doesn't cost you anything. David, it is fair to say, too, that if, if we reflect upon American history, the government has often um, seen the need to invest in big ways to uh, protect, help, uh, uh, you know, and also just improve the quality of life of Americans. I mean, we look at the highway system, we look at the uh, building of the electrical grid, all of that. I mean, we could talk about the equity there for sure. But the truth is, is that stock change on the scale can't really happen without the government being involved in investing, correct? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So there are really, there are really two kinds of adaptation. There's the kind that's already underway that big government and big industry already talks about. And then there's the little stuff that individuals can do to protect themselves. One of the most telling quotations in, in the book was from Michael Brown, as in hell of a job brownie, that guy, the, the former FEMA head and during Hurricane Katrina. And years later, he looked at the chaos that hit Hurricane Katrina when Hurricane Katrina hit. I mean, there was no police. There was no government. There were no communications, no TV, there were no, no radio, no Internet. It was just the 1850s in, in New Orleans. And so he said, when the chips are down and the extreme weather hits, your safety is going to be up to you. Do not rely on the government to save you. I mean, him, of all people, 
And I think that's right. You, I, I have to admit, when I read that quote, David, I wondered really what you were saying, um, because it struck me that Michael Brown's quote was an abdication of government responsibility for dealing with, and certainly Katrina was a prime example of government abdication of dealing with the crisis. So I, I'm not quite sure. Help us understand what the point is you're making by using that Michael Brown quote. Well, what I take away from it is, is yes, of course, he was in a way excusing his organization's failure. But what I take away from it in the book is that in the end, you shouldn't rely on the government rushing in to save you. In the end, it's going to be up to you, and you can take preparation steps now to make sure that you're, that you're safer. Uh, that is not to say, and I don't want people to be left with this impression, that is not to say that your book doesn't address how individuals can, in fact, have an influence on lawmakers in terms of dealing with climate change. You, in fact, instruct us all on how to communicate uh, our concerns about climate change. And, and I want to make sure people recognize that you're not suggesting that there's not a huge role for the Biden administration, for Congress and others to deal with climate change. That's absolutely right. The number one thing that you can do above all is not changing your light bulbs. It's not getting an electric car. The number one thing you can do is band together, join a climate activist group, uh, write an editorial for the paper, communicate with your elected officials. You join bigger waves. That's how real change happens. Kevin, uh, there's a big role for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution when it comes to op-eds about things like climate change. Yeah, I, I think, thanks to David, I'm going to get a whole bunch of email here shortly. But, of course, we're always <laughs> looking uh, we're always looking for, you know, well-informed opinions and um, the kinds of, you know, I think the challenge is, um, as he points out, is, is uh, that we all have as journalists is telling the stories that will impact people, that will bring the points home in a way that, that that leads to change, that leads to thoughtful um, efforts to mitigate, to anticipate, to deal with this, whether personally or at the government level. Um, David, one last quick question, because we're running out of time. Uh, Amelia Brock uh, read your book and she said, how the heck did he get all this information? How much research was involved in this? And what did he leave out? Where's volume two coming from? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a two-year project. And, and by the way, the book covers, you know, where to invest and how to insure and, as you say, how to strengthen your house. But I wasn't an expert on any of that stuff. You know, I'm, I'm like you. I'm a reporter. I'm an explainer. So this book is based on 55 expert interviews in all these industries. Uh, it took, took a year and a half, uh, a lot of reading, a lot of synthesizing, a lot of talking to the smart people. David Pogue, we're out of time. Uh, your book is How to Prepare for Climate Change. Um, Kevin Riley, thank you for joining me. It's been fun. Hey, you guys, you're Clevelandites, so let's play Randy Newman's famous song about one of the worst days in Cleveland history as we leave. Goodbye, everybody. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear at least one, if not two, masks. Cleveland City of Light, you're cold.